Tales from the Rep Morgue is presented by Malone University. If you're a certain age, you spend a fair bit of school time dodging snake bites and dysentery on the Oregon Trail. For most of us, the classic computer game was as close as we would get to frontier living. Late last year, the Center for Preparedness and Response, part of the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, released an Oregon Trail-inspired internet game called 1918 Pandemic Trail. Playing as a farmer, a soldier, or a letter carrier, you had to make it through a day in the fall of 1918 without catching the Spanish influenza. Survival depended on limiting your exposure to people who may have been carrying the virus, staying dry, and eating well. It was a fun, silly way to get people thinking about the flu season and the seriousness of the pandemic. It also was a nod to the biggest questions from the 1918 pandemic. Could it happen again? And are we prepared? Welcome to Tales from the Rep Morgue, the podcast where we explore stories from the 200-year-old archive of the Canton Repository. I'm your host, Shane Hoover. In this final episode of our pandemic series, we'll explore the legacy of the Spanish influenza, a disease that killed 50 million to 100 million victims around the world between 1918 and 1919. Part 1. Picking up the pieces. The flu pandemic killed an estimated 675,000 Americans and 463 Stark County residents. After it subsided, a fog of forgetfulness settled over the Spanish influenza. When key figures in fighting the flu died decades later, their obituaries mentioned nothing of their efforts. It was an unnoted chapter in the lives of Dr. Charles Lamont, the Canton Health Officer, and Red Cross officials Lenore Exline and Joseph H. Himes. Even institutions developed amnesia, while reporting for this podcast, I contacted the Canton chapter of the Red Cross to see what information it had about the pandemic. The agency couldn't find anything, despite playing a key role in the response to the disease. Canton Health Commissioner James Adams says it's taken the better part of a hundred years to get to where our society is willing to talk about the pandemic. My sense, and I've read about this in a couple of histories of the, of the, from the period, is that it was just so horrible that people blocked it out of their mind. It was so traumatic. There were virtually no family that was not affected by uh, having a loss close to home. I mean, if you can only imagine having two or three, four family members die within 24 hours of each other after contracting a disease that you couldn't do anything about. And I think that the level of trauma was just so high that we blocked it out and moved on. Kim Kenny, assistant director and curator of the McKinley Presidential Library and Museum, agrees. It's so it's so bizarre, really. I mean, it's the only thing I can think of um, in historical record for this country that we just skip, and it it's it's weird, truly. It's safe to say no one's telling campfire stories about the killer flu, but it has shaped the way we respond to infectious diseases and prepare for the next pandemic. Part 2 when we come back. 
Malone University is proud to be Canton's university with more than 50 programs that lead to careers in all fields. Finish your degree or earn your advanced degree through our adult programs. Find out more at www.malone.edu. Part 2. Lessons Learned. In 1997, researchers on a mission to unravel the genetic code of the Spanish influenza traveled to a remote village on the Bering Sea. When the pandemic hit Brevig Mission, Alaska, it killed 90% of the native Inuit population. The victims were buried in graves dug two meters into the permafrost. In one of those graves, scientists found the well-preserved body of an obese woman. The cool temperature of the ground along with the insulation provided by her fatty tissue, had preserved her organs, including her flu-ravaged lungs. Using tissue samples from her and other victims, scientists were able to decode the genetic profile of the 1918 pandemic flu, a process that took nine years. It's one of many steps that doctors and scientists have taken to learn more about the pandemic. One of the first lessons learned locally was a change in the way Ohio organized its public health districts. Before the pandemic, every township had its own health officer, meaning there were about 3,000 in the state. They didn't communicate well with each other or with state officials. You know, you had departments that were underreporting. They had a, a very slow and inadequate response to the disease. So the legislature acted and greatly reduced the number of health departments in the state at that time uh, and restructured it to pretty much the way that it is structured today. Today, there are health departments in Alliance, Canton, and Maslin, while the county health department oversees areas outside the city limits. And there is much better communication with state authorities when it comes to tracking the flu and other health threats, Adams says. Flu surveillance also has improved nationally and worldwide. In the United States, the CDC tracks flu cases in humans and coordinates with the U.S. Department of Agriculture to track influenza in livestock. And the World Health Organization has labs in 114 countries that watch for new subtypes of influenza A virus, the kind of flu that causes pandemics. During the 1918 flu, authorities often gave the public false assurances. The pandemic occurred during the First World War, and no one wanted to hurt morale. But people saw through those empty claims. One of them was Dr. George E. Jackson, the pastor of Canton's First Presbyterian Church, who wrote an open letter expressing his frustration. The physicians at first told us that the influenza was nothing but the old-fashioned grip. But today, they are frankly confessing that the symptoms are entirely different. It is perfectly idle to say that the people must not be frightened. It is time they were frightened. So another lesson from the pandemic was the importance for health officials to be honest when confronting a crisis. If something uh, is significant happening in the community that you know about, you have to let people know and you have to let people uh, under- try to help people understand what you do know about it, what you don't know about it, and what you're going to try to do to, uh, to get ahead of the situation. Back in 1918, doctors didn't fully understand viruses, and they didn't have flu vaccines, antiviral drugs, or antibiotics to treat pneumonia. Today, we have those and other tools to prevent and treat flu infections. 
You know, there is no good reason not to vaccinate anybody against influenza, even people with pretty severe um, uh, immunocompromised situations like cancer patients and things. There's very, very few exceptions to somebody being able to receive the vaccine. So, you know, what we have learned with modern medical technology, it is it is a preventable disease and vaccines are the best way to prevent that. So we're good, right? Part three, when we come back. Malone University is proud to be Canton's university with more than 50 programs that lead to careers in all fields. Finish your degree or earn your advanced degree through our adult programs. Find out more at www.malone.edu. Part 3. It could happen again. Um, When you think about this being the 21st century, it feels a lot in some ways like we probably felt then, like we have conquered all of this stuff. Um, But to know that, you know, it could happen again and, you know, we wouldn't be able to stop it. We might be able to slow it, um, but we wouldn't be able to stop it is, is scary to think about. Even with modern antiviral drugs, antibiotics, vaccines, and prevention knowledge, the flu can be deadly. Last flu season killed up to 80,000 Americans, an unusually high number for a non-pandemic year. The outbreak of a virus as deadly as the Spanish influenza could kill more than 100 million globally. Uh, Flu virus changes very, very quickly. And... um uh, we are on the edge. We can be on the edge of another pandemic at any kind of at any significant shift of these flu viruses. And so there are, like I said, there are people out there that are watching this constantly. They monitor this changing in patterns in flu viruses to take early action. There have been three flu pandemics since 1918. The last was in the spring of 2009, when a new strain of H1N1 virus emerged in the United States and spread around the world. The 2009 virus infected 60.8 million people in the United States, sent more than 274,000 to the hospital, and killed more than 12,000, according to the CDC. Between 151,000 and 575,000 people died globally, and 80% of deaths were in people younger than 65. Despite that toll, the 2009 pandemic certainly was less severe than the Spanish influenza, nor was it as bad as pandemics in 1957 and 1968. But it showed we are still vulnerable. Vaccines work, but the world doesn't have the capacity to vaccinate every person in a pandemic. In 2009, a bulk of the pandemic vaccine wasn't available until after the peak of the illness. While surveillance programs help the medical community respond quickly to new flu viruses, they are limited by resources, especially in countries of low and middle income. If there's not enough funding, a new virus could be missed. Despite our improvements over the past 100 years, we are unprepared for a pandemic of 1918's severity, experts say. The good news is, at least locally, this flu season is shaping up to be a mild one. But who knows what new viruses are lurking out there. Thanks for listening to Tales from the Rep Morgue, presented by Malone University. And special thanks to Robert Wang for his voice work on this episode. Our theme song was Blind by Mydon. You can check out the show notes for this episode 
and listen to other episodes of The Rep Morgue at cantonrep.com. Next time on Tales from the Rep Morgue, The Death Banquet. <laughs>